All right, we come now this morning to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn today to Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is the passage of Scripture that we're going to be focusing on together this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And as you're turning there, we're going to take some time and we're going to call upon the name of the Lord again as the church. And we're going to ask God for help. We're going to ask God for grace this morning to understand his word. And so let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And Lord, we come worshiping right now. Lord, God, thank you for that reminder of your glory through song. God, you are mighty. You shall reign forever, and we praise you, Lord. We worship you, God. We ask for your help now to get low before you. God, your word says that you resist the proud, but that you give grace to the humble. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, the mighty king, this morning. God, help us to tremble at your word, to tremble at your authority. Make us submissive servants to you, the mighty king, this morning. Make us attentive to your word. God, we ask that you would do a work of grace on our hearts this morning. Make us desire to obey you. Make us willing to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. All right, we're going to cover Deuteronomy chapter 7 this morning. And we have a long passage. First thing we're going to do is we're going to read God's word together. We have a long passage as a church this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to stand for the reading of the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here we go. Verse 1, this is the word of God to Grace Community Church. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number 
than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the ones who hate him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness And none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and an awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand. And you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. This is the word of God this morning to Grace Community Church. You may be seated. 
All right, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a simple walk through this text, make sure we understand uh, just the basic outline that's here, and then we'll double back, and I want to spend the majority of our time dealing with some difficulties in this chapter. I'll point out four when we get there. You may have noticed when we read this chapter that this chapter begins and ends with a command to destroy the inhabitants of the promised land. You see that at the beginning in verses 1 through 5, and you see it at the end in verses 16 through 25. And so these are like the bookends of Deuteronomy 7, this command to destroy the, the Canaanites. Okay? And so that's what I want to handle first. Right, This command that God give is, gives Israel to devote the peoples to complete destruction. And so when Israel crossed the Jordan and when they entered into the promised land, they were going to have to fight the inhabitants of that land, take their land and put them to the sword. Okay, that's the commandment. In verse 1, Moses lists seven different tribes, the inhabitants of this land, and God tells Israel that these enemies are bigger and stronger than you are. Okay? So imagine that as the halftime speech. Okay? The coach comes in and says, listen, they're bigger than you, they're stronger than you, but we're going to whip them from start to finish. Okay? You are going to destroy an enemy that's bigger and stronger than you. Completely destroy them. That's the commandment here. Only with the help of Israel's God could Israel defeat these inhabitants. And I want you to look in verse 2. The command is to, to devote them to complete destruction. That's the translation of this important Hebrew word in the Old Testament. I mentioned this uh, probably about a month ago now. That word is harem. Okay? Translated in the ESV as complete destruction. Okay? And it actually shows up twice in verse 2. The command is harem, harem. Okay? Complete destruction. Destruction. This word is a reference to the ban, the things that Israel was banned from using. You couldn't use uh, the harem for yourself. It was devoted completely to the Lord. And in verse 2, the command is to devote the peoples completely to Yahweh by completely destroying them. Now they had already done this to some of the Amorite kings that were in Moab, in the land of Moab. Um, you, you, you hear this in Deuteronomy chapter 2, listen, verse 34. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children, and we left no survivors. Right? This is a difficult commandment. For us to wrap our heads around in our context. This is the commandment to completely destroy the inhabitants. It's repeated later in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 16. Listen. But in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, 
and the Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now this is a serious commandment in the law of Moses. The commandment of Her- that deals with the harem. The, the ban, the devotion to destruction. I want to give you two examples as we read the Old Testament that will help you understand just how serious this command was. One example is the sin of Achan. When Joshua takes the people of God into the city of Ai, remember that story, and, 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 and Achan smuggles out some of the bands, some of the things that were devoted to Yahweh, and he keeps them to himself. That sin in Achan's life cost him his life, but also the life of his family. This is a serious sin, okay? To take something that is devoted to Yahweh, it's set apart only for him. This was also... The sin of Saul in 1 Samuel 15, you remember the story where Saul was instructed uh, to, to put to death the Amalekites. Okay? And Saul spared in that war, he had a great victory, but he spared King Agag and some of the livestock of the Amalekites, some of the best of the livestock. And you remember that story, he was confronted by the prophet Samuel and and because he broke this harem command, God rejected him from being king of Israel. It cost him the throne. Okay? He rejected the word of the Lord, and God rejected him from being king in Israel. And so this harem command is serious business in the Old Testament. Right? Complete destruction, the inhabitants of the land. Now, Israel was to accomplish this destruction by the strength of Yahweh. And you see this in verse 17 and 18. Okay? When they were fearful about being outmatched by their enemy, outgunned, outmanned, outmatched, when they're fearful of that, they were to remember that God had already destroyed a stronger enemy than the Canaanites. And Moses, Moses caused them to remember when God delivered them from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. When Yahweh broke the Egyptian bondage and delivered them from the Egyptian king. Verse 19 argues in this way. So will the Lord do to all these peoples of whom you are afraid. And so I want you to notice that argument from greater to lesser. If God has already done the greater thing, broke the Egyptian bondage, redeemed you from the grip of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, then God will do the lesser thing by destroying these Canaanites in the promised land. Now just a side note, that argument still works today for the people of God. That's how we argue ourselves to faith, argue ourselves to trusting in God. We argue from the greater to the lesser. It's still true today for the people of God that our greatest enemy has already been destroyed. Sin has already been canceled at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that argument of faith argues this way. If God has already conquered our greatest enemy... The Bible says, whom shall we fear? Whom shall we be afraid? And the answer is no one and nothing. 
no one and nothing. We conquer fear by remembering the work of our God, the mighty work of our God. God promises to help them in this conquest. You see that in verse 20? He says he will send hornets before the enemy, right? Verse 23, he'll throw them into great confusion. This is not just going to be a, a, a flesh versus flesh battle. Israel is going to war with Yahweh in their midst. Supernatural power of God. Hornets here are likely a metaphor for a panic that God will send upon the enemy. Sometimes it's explained this way in the writings of Moses, that the fear of you and the dread of you will fall upon the peoples. In verse 22, they were forbidden from accomplishing this harem too quickly. Okay, So it's not going to be an all-at-once thing. He says, lest the wild beast multiply and they're too much for you to handle and they take over the land. So this is not going to be a one and done. This is going to be a progressive overtaking of the inhabitants of the promised land. Now there's a whole book of the Bible that deals with this harem, this conquest of the promised land. And that's the book of Joshua. This, this generation that's being prepared to cross Jordan and go to war. And the book of Joshua chronicles battle after battle where the people of God conquer the enemies of Yahweh. And Joshua chronicles for us that many of these cities were exactly what God commanded. They were put to complete destruction. There was nothing left that breathed in those cities. But the history of Israel shows us that they never fully accomplished this commandment. Okay? They never fully accomplished what God called them to do here. This is a comment from Solomon's day, from Solomon's reign. 1 Kings 19 says this, All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. And so 1 Kings tells us that there were peoples left that were unable to be conquered, and Solomon made them slaves in Israel. So they never fully accomplished what God called them to do in Deuteronomy 7. But even the way, you may have noticed this, even the way the chapter is worded is tipping us off that Israel is not going to fully accomplish this complete destruction, this complete conquest. Notice in verse 2, right after God tells Israel to devote them to, to complete destruction, he says this in verse 2, make no covenant with them, and then in verse 3, he says, do not intermarry with them. That ought to cause us to think for just a moment. Strictly speaking, those commands would not be necessary 
if the complete destruction were accomplished. In other words, if everybody was completely destroyed, there's nobody left to make a covenant with, and there's nobody left to intermarry. And so these commandments are tipping us off. Israel is not going to finish this commandment. They're not going to, going to accomplish this complete destruction. So there are going to be surviving Canaanites in the promised land, and God gives us commandments in chapter 7 that Israel is to separate from those survivors. They're to remain distinct from these Canaanite tribes. And that separation and distinction, that maintaining their distinct identity, it involved negative duties and positive duties. I want you to notice a few. Verse, verse 2 and 3 first, these are the negative duties. Show them no mercy, do not make any covenants with them, and do not intermarry with them. So don't do that. Do not intermingle with them. No treaties, no covenants. Okay, you see an example of that broken in the next chapter, I mean the next book of the Bible, the Gibeonite deception, where the people of God enter into a covenant with their enemies that they weren't supposed to enter into. That was a breach of this commandment right here. Not supposed to intermingle with these Canaanite tribes. Now, I want to say this as an aside. The purpose of forbidding these covenants and forbidding this intermarriage was religious, not race-based. Okay? It was, it was, the prohibitions were based off of religion, not based off of race. In other words, never understand these commandments to be, to be unpacked like this. Don't make covenants with them and don't intermarry with them because you are a chosen race and races aren't supposed to intermingle with each other. That is not what the Word of God says. That is not what the Word of God says. Look at verse 4. What happens if they were to disobey these commandments and enter into these covenants and enter into this intermarriage? Verse 4 says this, For they would turn away your sons from following me. This is based off of religion. They're not supposed to intermingle with the Canaanite tribes so that these tribes don't turn them away from Yahweh, the Lord their God. Now there's false teaching today modern-day racism that tries to find footing for its teaching in verses like this in the Bible. An example of this is the teaching of kinism, which teaches that, that we're not supposed to intermingle as, as races, as ethnicities, that we're supposed to maintain distinctions, that, that this ethnicity has their church and their marriage, and this ethnicity has their church and their marriage, and all that is is racism. And it's not, it's not anywhere close to what Moses teaches here, okay? Moses does not forbid intermarriage so that all the ethnicities can remain distinct. He says so that the people of God aren't drawn away from the gospel. All right, so the purpose of this separation is for religion. It's for religion. That they would be true to the covenant of God. Now, there was also positive duties that were required in maintaining their distinct identity. And you see one example of this in verse 5. God says, break down their altars. Tear them down. 
Verse 25, verse 25 begins and ends the, the chapter in the same way. The carved images of their God burn them with fire. Tear down all of that idolatry. Positive duties. Israel is to tear down all the temptations to Canaanite idolatry in the promised land. It was to be eradicated. Now you remember, you probably noticed this the first time you read through the books of Kings or the books of Chronicles, that there's this cycle of a good king and then several bad kings and then a a reforming king and then several bad kings. And one of the things that's repeated over and over in those books is even the kings who reform things, they leave one thing undone. And over over again we're said, but but the high places in the land, they didn't tear them down. But the high places in the land, they didn't tear them down. This was a breach of this commandment right here. These places of Canaanite worship were, were, were left untouched in Israel. And they became a snare to every generation. But the commandment was God told his people, tear down their altars, burn their images with fire. Why was Israel to remain distinct? Why were they to remain distinct? He tells us in verse 6, begins with the word for, okay, grounding all these commandments. He says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord. You're to remain distinct and separate from these Canaanite tribes because you belong to Yahweh. You are Yahweh's people. You are set apart for the Lord. And so the ground for separating from idols is Israel's election by God. God chose them. God chose them. And he says he chose them out of all the peoples. Of the nations. They were selected by God. They were chosen by God. Israel alone was chosen by God to belong to God as his treasured possession among the peoples. And then notice that Yahweh says that his choosing of Israel is not because of anything in them. Verse 7 Not because you were more in number. We have a tendency to do that with the doctrine of election. God chose, yeah, God chose me because I'm awesome. God saw something in me that was valuable to him, and so God chose me. Look at what the text says. He didn't choose them because of anything in them. In fact, he says, you're the smallest of all the tribes. I didn't choose you because you were more in number. It's not that God looked out and saw the mightiest nation in the world and said, yep, that's my people and I'm going to conquer everybody with them. God doesn't work like that. He chooses the smallest of the nations and with that small tribe, he goes to war in the promised land, drives out the Canaanites. Not because of anything in them, but rather it's because God loved them. Look at verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you. It is because the the Lord loves you. Now notice the move here. Not because of anything in you, 
but because of something in God. Not because you're more numerous. It's because God loves you. The Lord loves you. Now one of the most important things you can ever learn is to know, and not just factually, but to know by experience that God doesn't love you because you're awesome. God loves you because he loves you. One of the most important things to learn in your whole life. We have a tendency to just twist this so backwards. God loves me because I'm lovable. The Bible never teaches that. God loves us because he loves us. Now I know that is a circular argument. But you need to know that the reason or the ground of the love of God is found in him and not in you. It's not in you, it's in him. It is because the Lord loves you. And then on the basis of the status of holiness given to Israel. They are a people holy to the Lord their God. The Lord loves his people. This nation in verse 11 is exhorted to carefully obey Yahweh's commandments. And so God loves Israel. And Israel is to reciprocate that love. Okay? Israel is to show love back to God. They are to love the God that loved them first. And they're to show that love through keeping the Lord's commandments. In verse 9, God announces himself as the faithful God who keeps covenant. The faithfulness of God, like so many of God's attributes, is a double-edged sword. It's a comfort to the righteous, but it's a terror to the wicked. The faithfulness of God is a comfort to the people of God, but it is a terrifying reality to those who are outside of Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean? Well, the faithfulness of God means that God is faithful to his word. And it comforts believers because this means that God is faithful to his word of salvation, to his word of mercy. Verse 9, he keeps steadfast love to a thousand generations. He's faithful to his word. He's a faithful God. But this same God is also faithful to his word of judgment. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to every word he's ever spoken. And this is a terror to those outside of Christ. Look at verse 10. He repays those who hate him. God is faithful. He's faithful to save and he's faithful to judge. This is who God is and this faithful God in verses 13 through 15, this faithful God promises to bless his people. To bless his people. These are covenant blessings. These verses, 13 through 15, describe a prosperity that extends to every sphere of life in Israel. There's going to be fruitfulness in the place of barrenness. There's going to be prosperity in the place of scarcity. And he says this in lots of different ways. God will multiply the nation and bless the fruit of the womb. That's part of the, the, the blessing of Abraham. He's going to make them numerous as the stars of heaven. 
He's going to bless the womb, make them fruitful, make them multiply. He's also going to bless the ground, the land that they live in. It's going to bring forth grain and wine and oil, prosperity. And then God says, I'm going to remove the sicknesses from you, the sicknesses that, uh, of Egypt. I'm going, to, I'm going to put them on your enemies. And so, in summary, God's going to give them life, fruitful womb, and the means to sustain that life, grain, wine, oil, and God's going to give them the means to enjoy that life, health, and not sickness. It's a picture of prosperity promised to the people of God. Now all these are summarized of this Old Testament concept of God promising life to his people. What does that mean? This is what that means. Life. God will give you life and what is needed to sustain it and what is needed to enjoy it. God is promising life to his people. Now... Before you get too excited about taking verses 13 through 15 as high-octane, prosperity gospel rocket fuel, okay? before you do that, I want you to remember that these promises were given to a specific people, not you, for a specific land, not here, under a specific covenant, not this one, okay? So just know that. And also remember that Israel did not inherit these blessings. They failed to bring these about, okay? We'll come back to that in a minute. So this is just an outline of what we have in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, I, wanna, I, I, want, I want you to notice several difficulties in this chapter, right? And I'm going to refer to them as hermeneutical tensions in the Word of God. And you need to learn how to deal with these. You need to learn how to, how to see them, how to identify them, how to ask good questions of a biblical text, and how to sort through when God's Word seems to put forward two seemingly contradictory concepts, hermeneutical tensions, okay? I want to deal with four of them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And the first is what I'm going to call the moral dilemma. The moral dilemma in this chapter. Simply stated, the moral dilemma could be said like this, how can the God of love, of verse 8, the God who loves you because he loves you, command the complete destruction of seven people groups in verse 1. How do those two things go together? Okay? And that's a question for us to consider this morning. Is the love of God and the harem command, are they compatible concepts? Okay? Unbelievers say no. Mockers Say no. Can't have a God of love and this Canaanite conquest. It just doesn't work. I want to unpack two fatal assumptions behind that unbelieving assertion. Number one, 
it assumes that God's love cancels all of God's wrath. That's a false assumption. Number two, it assumes that harem is fundamentally unjust. That when we read these commands and what happened in the promised land, that the, the takeaway is obviously this wasn't fair. Again, a false assumption. So we'll take those one by one. The reality is, Deuteronomy 7, in the same chapter of the Bible, we see a display of God's love and God's wrath. God's mercy and God's holy justice in the same chapter of the Bible. Okay, Now, as you read scripture, you will learn this is something that happens everywhere. God is, is loving, God is merciful, and God is holy, and God is just. I'll give you two examples. Genesis chapter 3. Sin of the first man. Adam rebels against his God. God comes and is the justice of God revealed to us in Genesis chapter 3? Is the righteousness of God revealed to us in chapter 3? And you would have to say, by any objective standard, yes it is. God cursed the devil. God pronounced consequences for sin on the man and the woman. Subjected the whole creation to futility. Banished Adam and Eve from the garden. And the entire rest of human history, even to this day, is lived east of the Garden of Eden with us cut off from the tree of life. Did God reveal his justice in Genesis 3? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. The God of Genesis 3 is just. But the same question you could ask, but is did God reveal his mercy in Genesis chapter 3? And again, by any objective standard, you would have to say, yes, in the midst of judging the serpent, God gives the promise of the gospel. Tells the woman, you're going to have a son, a seed, that's going to crush the head of the serpent. You're not going to die, you're going to have some babies. You're going to live. Adam names the woman Eve, the mother of living, which is a really odd name for someone who just brought death into the world. They're not going to die. They're going to live. God is showing mercy to them. Covers them with animal garments. It's a picture of the righteousness that God provides his people. Same chapter of the Bible. The justice of God and the mercy of God are revealed in the same exact story. I mean, it's not even justice in three, mercy in chapter four. The same exact story shows both of these truths about God. Same thing in the flood. Is the justice of God revealed in the flood of Noah? You better believe it is. The Bible says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And it grieved God to his heart. And he sent a flood of judgment to destroy, to blot out man from the face of the earth. And the Bible says that God put to death every human being in that judgment besides eight people. Does that show the holy wrath of God? You bet it does. 
same exact chapters in the Bible. Does the flood show the mercy of God? You better believe it does. The Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God commands Noah, go build that ark of salvation. You, your wife, your whole household, enter into that ark and you'll be saved from that stormy blast of judgment. God's salvation and God's judgment is revealed in the exact same story. So this is something that happens all over the Bible. The love of God and the justice of God are revealed in the same biblical text. God is both just and loving. We see that again here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, that assumption that God's harem command is fundamentally unjust is also a false assumption. It was a just judgment on a wicked people. That's what the Bible says. In two different places we are told this is not a really bad thing that happens to really good people. This is a just judgment upon a wicked people. What does God tell Abraham? He says, I'm going to give you the land. When does God say he's going to give it to him? When the sin of the Amorites is what? Completed. Hundreds of years later, the patience of God has stood by and patiently endured wicked generation after wicked generation after wicked generation, storing up wrath for the day of wrath, storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Later in, Gen in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God says the same thing. He says, I didn't give you this land because of your righteousness, but because of the wickedness of this people. I'm driving them out because they're wicked. And so in, in this harem command, God did not destroy innocent people full stop. Full stop. What the harem command functions as in the Old Testament, it's important for us. Okay, it's important. We, this is not one of the places in God's word where we say, yeah, we love Jesus. Yeah, we love God, but we hold our nose and we don't, you know, we kind of apologize for some of this hard stuff in the Old Testament. No, this is important. Okay, this harem command portrayed an important picture that God gave his people. It functions as a type of the final judgment. Type of the final judgment. A foretaste of it. God does this. He gives us foretaste of glory. And he gives us foretaste of the coming judgment. He tells us what it's going to be like. You see this in the flood. The flood is a foretaste of the final judgment. A type. Same with this harem command. Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein explains this as intrusion ethics. And here's what he says. In the harem command, the intrusion of the ethical principles of the final judgment intrude into Israel's history. Translation, God gave them a picture of what the final judgment was going to be like. It is intended to show us the holy justice, the holy wrath of God upon the unrepentant. This is what it will be like on the final day. Complete destruction. Complete destruction. 
later in Israel's history, God threatened to bring harem on them. If you don't repent, I'll bring the harem on you. Listen to the, uh, Jeremiah 20, 25 verse 9. Behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar my servant. I will bring him against this land and I will devote them to destruction. Make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. This Canaanite warfare gives us a glimpse. This is, this is the eternity that awaits every human being who refuses to bow the knee to Jesus, repent of their sin, and put their trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible promises complete destruction for everyone outside of Jesus Christ. And so this is important stuff. This is giving us these glimpses that should provoke this fear of God in us, this fear of judgment, this fleeing from the wrath to come, taking heed to the word of God. That's the first dilemma. The second is this. We'll call it the missional dilemma. You got two concepts here. One, on the one hand, the Old Testament often speaks about Israel's role bringing blessing to the nations. You, you, you see that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what the Word of God teaches. They're going to bring blessing to the nations. The prophet Isaiah calls Israel a light to the nations. They're supposed to be a light to the nations. So how can we square that concept of Israel blessing the nations with this harem command in Deuteronomy 7? We need to learn, number one, Israel could only bring blessing to the nations by remaining distinctly Israel. She could only bless the nations if she remained Israel. In other words, if she was canonized, she couldn't fulfill the role that, that God had to bring about the promises. You say, what are those promises? To bring forth the Christ. It was through this line that God had chosen, the line of Abraham, the line uh, 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 of Israel, the son of David. It was through this nation that the Christ would come forth. This is Paul's argument in Romans 9. To them belong the Christ who is God over all. They were to bring forth the Christ of God. If Israel was Canaanized, she would lose her ability to bring blessing to the nations. And so we need to understand this, that what's at stake in remaining distinct is the gospel itself. If they're compromised, you don't, you don't only disobey this commandment, you lose the gospel. The promises of God fall by the wayside. Also important to note with this missional dilemma is that the same Abrahamic covenant that promised in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, also promised judgment. Listen to what he says in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. That's one side. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
God will bless those who bless Abraham and God will curse those who dishonors Abraham. And so this Abrahamic all nations promise, it did not ever intend to exclude judgment upon particular nations in history. That's a false assumption. And so both are true. God's going to bring blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham. And God is going to judge unrepentant nations for their wickedness. And you see them both here. Number three. I'll call this one the arbitrary dilemma. What I mean by this is when Christians, when we assert, when we assert that this harem is no longer a commandment for the people of God. We believe that, by the way. Okay, This is no longer a commandment for the people of God. We have to be prepared to deal with one of the most common arguments against the authority of the Bible. And it goes something like this. The assertion that Christians arbitrarily pick which commands to keep and which commands to ignore. That's the unbelieving charge. Y'all are just making this stuff up. You just pick what you like. You just leave the rest. An example of this, definitely in the realm of sexual ethics. Listen, listen to this example. So you think homosexuality is a sin, right? Then why do you eat shrimp and pork when the Bible forbids it? I mean, that is just, you know, thought to be such the best burn in the history of the world of catching the people of God. Like, aha, we got you. You don't keep this commandment, but you, you will keep this one. This is a common objection, but listen, it is a really, really bad argument. Because it's based off of complete ignorance of biblical hermeneutics. The way that we interpret the Bible. Really common, but really bad argument against the authority of Scripture. In the Old Testament, there were laws that were put in place to keep Israel distinct. That's what God is after here. He doesn't want them compromised. He wants them distinct from the Gentiles. Examples of these, dietary laws, holy days, Jewish calendar, Jewish dietary laws, and yes, Jewish harem command, keeping them distinct from all the other nations. Now, why did God want to distinguish Israel? We already said that. This is the nation that's going to bring forth the Christ, the deliverer, that's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus came, what did he do? He redefined Israel. He spiritualized Israel. He expanded Israel to include everyone who trusts in Jesus as a son of Abraham. Every Jew and Gentile distinction was abolished in the church when Christ came. This is what Ephesians 2 teaches, that Jesus tore it down with his death and resurrection. Everything that would distinguish the people of God in this Old Covenant Jew-Gentile way, the Bible says Jesus tore it down and made one new man in the place of two. 
which means that all Old Testament laws that distinguish Israel, like Jewish dietary laws, Jewish holy days, and, and yes, Jewish harem command, is abolished in the church of Jesus Christ. This is not arbitrary. This is not picking and choosing which, which you have and which you don't have. The coming of Jesus changed our covenant. Christ changed our covenant. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, when there is a change in priesthood, there is a change in law as well. So maybe good news for you this morning as a visitor to GCC, we don't believe we keep this commandment anymore. To devote the inhabitants of the promised land to complete and total destruction. Our, our covenant has changed. And yet, Deuteronomy 7 still applies to us. Not in this one-to-one way, but it still applies to us by way of principle. And you see the New Testament pick up on these themes. The New Testament teaches that Christians are called to be separate from the world. Can't understand this covenant change as, oh yeah, we can be as worldly as we want now. It's against the commandments of God. Jesus says we're to be in the world, but not of the world. 2 Corinthians 6 forbids Christians from being unequally yoked with unbelievers. There are dangerous partnerships that you can have in this world. There's a dangerous level of fellowship that you can have with this world that's dangerous for you. Don't be unequally yoked, the Bible says. Ephesians 5 calls us to have, listen, no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness. You're supposed to be separate. You're supposed to be distinct as the people of God. We're commanded not to love the world, 1 John chapter 2. We're commanded to beware of idols. Guard yourself from idols. We're commanded to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. This is part of your holiness as the people of God, that you have this proper separation from worldliness. Those who ignore these commands can expect exactly what Deuteronomy 7 warns us about. They will turn you away from following your God. And so we already know how the story ends for the Christian who says, yeah, I hear those warnings, yeah, I hear those commandments, but I'll walk as close as I can to the world. It won't burn me. The Bible says it will turn you away from the Lord your God. It will turn your allegiance away. Finally, dilemma number four. We'll call this the contingency dilemma. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, law-keeping is made a condition for God continuing in covenant with Israel. Look at it again. Because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant. There's this contingency language that swallows up this chapter. And it shows up in lots of places in Deuteronomy. I will bless you 
But there's some contingencies here. We don't know how this thing is going to end. Okay? There's some conditionality language. The prosperity blessings that God promised in verses 13 through verse 15 are promised only to a law-keeping Israel. It is to a law-keeping Israel that God will make them fruitful and prosperous and rich and no sickness. And so the blessing is not secure because it's contingent upon obedience, their obedience, which is uncertain at this point as we read Deuteronomy 7. Now that's an unsettling thing for the people of God. Is he going to bless me or is he not going to bless me? Okay. Now one of the difficulties of the Mosaic Covenant is that it points two different directions at the same time. Okay. If you're taking notes, it's a good time to jot stuff down. It points on the one hand to works and on the other hand to the gospel at the same time. Maybe you notice this. Okay? You see the gospel pictured, for example, in the sacrifices that the law of Moses gives to the people of God. These gracious sacrifices, these, the, these instructions on what to do when you sin to secure the forgiveness of sin. You're saying, man, that... That pictures the gospel. That typifies Jesus Christ and the gospel. Yet, this same covenant also pictures this do this and live principle. Okay? This do this and live principle. You could summarize it in this way. The same covenant that starts with this gracious redemption from Egypt, this works do this and live principle keeps popping up in this covenant. What do we do with that? What do we do with this contingency language? Romans chapter 10, verse 5, we read these words. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Somewhere Moses writes about this. Okay, many, many have referred to this works principle that comes off of this do this and live language in the law of Moses. This works principle was the reason for the failure of the old covenant. So you put your hand in Deuteronomy 7. This conditional obedience and blessing language. By the way, we're going to get to the end of this book. There's going to be chapters of blessings if you obey and curses if you don't obey. How'd they do? How'd they do with this arrangement? We read the history of Israel and we find out that they were covenant breakers. They were exiled from the land. That the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it did not bring about the promises for the people of God, it, it was, there was a fault to it, okay? And the fault was the people. They couldn't keep the covenant. They didn't obey God. They didn't inherit the blessing. They were removed from the land, and they were, they were under the curse and not under the covenant blessings of God. This is the works principle. Do this and live. The contingency of the old covenant made it uncertain because the old covenant did not come with a guarantee of a new heart. 
You could be in the Mosaic Covenant and have an old dead heart. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. This is to the covenant people of God. He says this, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So the old covenant didn't come with a guarantee of regeneration, a guarantee of a new heart. One way to say this is that Moses doesn't give you what he commands of you. He's good at commanding, but the Mosaic Covenant doesn't give you what it commands. A famous summary is found in John Bunyan. He says, he summarizes the law of Moses in this way, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Law commands us, but it doesn't provide us what is commanded. And so we know we need something better. We need something better than this contingency language. And the Bible is moving towards something better. As this covenant unfolds and ultimately fails to secure the blessing for the people of God, the way is made for this new covenant. The fault of the old opens the door for what the Bible calls a better covenant, a new covenant. And what do we know about that new covenant? We know it's secure. Some of the most precious words that you could ever drink down in your soul is, I'm in a secure relationship with God. This covenant is inaugurated, the Bible says, with the blood of Jesus. With the blood of Jesus Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats. It's not like the old. It's the new covenant, inaugurated with the blood of the Son of God. It's made secure by the blood of Christ. It's guaranteed, listen, by the efficacy of the Holy Spirit. It's better. It's new. It won't fail. It will accomplish its purpose for the people of God. Now let me say this clearly. The difference is not, between the old and the new, is not one has conditions and the other has no conditions. That's not the difference. That's not the difference. The new covenant commands us to what? Repent. Believe the gospel. Should we do that? You bet we should do that. Only those who repent, only those who believe the gospel will be saved. And Jesus will save every person who repents. Every person who believes the gospel. There are conditions in the new covenant. New covenant also warns us that without holiness you will not see the Lord. No place in the New Covenant for somebody to presume upon the blood of Jesus. And I'll just say I love Jesus, say I believe in Jesus, and live like hell, live however I want. I won't love God, obey God, I don't care anything about God, but man, I prayed that prayer when I was 13 years old, and I'm saved. I'm saved. No room for that in the New Covenant. Without holiness, you will not see the Lord. There are conditions. So the condition, the, the difference is not one has conditions and the other has none. The difference, listen friends, the difference is the new covenant conditions are guaranteed by the new covenant mediator, Jesus Christ. They are secure. There's not contingency here. The blood of Jesus has made it, made it secure. He has purchased our eternal salvation with his blood. It's sure, it's steady, it's stable, it's secure. All the conditions of the new covenant are met 
by the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. This is why the covenant is better. It's why the mediator of the covenant is better. Jesus came to do what Moses could never do. And so the new covenant comes to us with a mediator who perfectly keeps the law on our behalf. He did this for us in our place. The Bible says this, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That performance to earn right standing with God is over because of Jesus. He's the end of that. He tears that down forever. Christ is the end of this for all who believe. That's our justification. New covenant justification before God. The new covenant also comes with a guarantee of a new heart by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Ezekiel promises this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God promised that in the new covenant. Friends, that's our sanctification. Jesus is our justification. Indwelling spirit is our sanctification. What about this Old Testament prosperity language? These Old Testament blessings. They were a, that's a type of heaven. That's a type of heaven. That's a type of the inheritance that awaits the people of God. That's a shadow. I'll make you fruitful. I'll multiply you. Grain, wine, oil, no sickness. That was a shadow. The substance is what Jesus purchased for us with his own blood. And so what awaits us as the people of God? There will be no scarcity. There will be no sickness in heaven. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Sorrow will be banished in heaven, this is part of our inheritance secured for us by the blood of Jesus. Friends, that's our glorification. Christ is our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And all of that, every bit of it, is because of Jesus. All of it is of grace. The grace of God. Christian, you're saved because of Him. You are being sanctified because of Him. You are on your way to glory because of Him. All the contingencies have been made secure because of Him. I want to end our time together in the same way we started this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the verse that Greg welcomed us with today. And I want you to receive it with faith this morning. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, let's pray. Lord, we come today... And we want to thank you for your word. We ask again, Lord, that you would help us to live humbly before you. God, help us to get low before you and our spirits to tremble at your word. And God, we thank you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ.
Lord, we pray that you would help us to run the race that is set before us with this status of righteousness that you've given us, with these promises before us that are guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Lord, strengthen your church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.